This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with Quartz publisher Jay Loff about the state of ad-based digital publishing, Quartz's bet on branded content, and the dangers of programmatic advertising. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm here, as always, with Jack Marshall. Jack, what's going on? Not much, Steve. I'm good. So we've got, uh, you know, our, our listeners know the Wall Street Journal. They read us for our, you know, excellent business coverage. And we're joined by an executive at another great business publication, Quartz. Uh, Jay Loff is here. He's the publisher. He's the president of Quartz. Uh, so, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So we we were sort of talking about, uh, you know, what to, what to you know, begin with here. And, and um, I'm sure you were sort of following last week. Uh, there was the news that Medium, the... Uh, uh, publishing platform uh, decided to pivot as, as startups do, you know, yes. in startup parlance. And in this uh, Medium post about their pivot, they talked about sort of like the death of the um, online ad-based publication business model. Yep. And you guys obviously are an advertising-based uh, digital media publication. So when you're kind of – it sparked a lot of hand-wringing. I'm curious, when you read things like this as, you know – basically saying the business model that we operate in is dying. Do you, I mean, does that make you nervous or are you like not seeing that at all? And, uh, and you know, what's your sort of response to that? Yeah, I, I'm going to forget. I don't know if it's an Oscar Wilde quote or whatever, but it sounds like, right, the, the news of my death is, is uh, highly exaggerated or, or whatever the, <laughs> the quote is. Yeah, I think, um, listen, there's a lot of uh, understandable um, reason for concern for companies that are, you know, are, are ad supported, particularly, you know, digital companies. But I think a few things. One is we're certainly not seeing it, um, and that's that's no spin. We have grown um, steadily for the four and a half years that we've been in existence on the back of uh, purely on the back of digital advertising. Uh, I do think that um, there's been a problem with really um, crummy digital advertising that has created some of some of the issues. And I would pose that when we started in 2012, and I, I don't gloat about this because we had the advantage of a clean slate in 2012. Our um, one of our early suppositions was with this clean canvas to paint on, why would you go back and replicate all of the lousy ad experiences that had led that have you know led to low CPMs, shoddy business models, um, ad blockers and all the rest of it. So I guess the short answer is I don't think that uh, that there's a full death of, uh, you know, of digital advertising on the horizon. So are you referring mostly to sort of commoditized banner advertising? In, in that instance. Exactly. Because I, Medium was following sort of a, a sponsored content type approach, which, you know, I be, believe you guys do also. But. Yeah. And, and there I would just say, you know, execution is really hard. Um, and I think Medium itself probably uh, never went all in on that concept from the beginning, right? There, there are a lot of different models you could pursue um, with Medium. It isn't necessarily a pure play publisher in the way that we are. So I understand where there could be some schizophrenia around, you know, which way do we go with this? And I, I think maybe for them, they made a, a smart uh, a smart decision. Um, but, yeah, I do think execution, whether you're doing standard advertising or non-standard or content, um, is one of the critical components. And I think there are a lot of uh, organizations that don't execute well. So when you guys 
sort of burst onto the scene. Branded content was kind of in its early days on the internet, and now lots of media companies, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, sure. have really delved into that more over the past few years. For for you guys, how has that evolved as a um, you know a portion of your business? Like what? What percentage of your revenue does your branded content business make up now, and like, what, where do you? How has that evolved over the past few years? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of our revenue is tied in some form or fashion to a branded content campaign, whether that gets fulfilled in the actually, you know, billing against that that content marketing, or is part of a larger buy that includes some display. Um, we have sort of two simple options there. I think the main ways that it's evolved is we've taken the approach of um, the same approach that we've taken with our journalism, which is that branded content should have varieties of expressions that live natively, to use a wildly overused term, um, on whatever platform that might be. So the way the content from that we create for a, a client or content that they pay to run with us expresses itself in our app or in our email newsletter is different than it might be on QZ.com. And in some cases, is very different on QZ.com, you know, the desktop site, as it is from the, the mobile site. So I think the evolution for us has been um, uh, as as things have shifted to uh, increasingly to a mobile world and various expressions there, we we're I think we're very very nimble at, at building for that. You mentioned email there, which is something that we don't maybe talk enough about on on this podcast or perhaps just the industry generally. It's, it's I, just such a sexy topic. Email. Yeah, I mean yeah. maybe it's boring, but um, you know I know you guys sort of had a very successful email newsletter from early on in in the existence of the of the site. Um, how important is that to your business sort of as both, a, I guess, like a revenue driver, but also in terms of distribution? Yeah, is it like Quartz's secret weapon, the uh, email newsletter? <laughs> yeah, if, if, if I had a secret weapon, I wouldn't reveal the secret, <laughs> probably. Uh, <laughs> on a podcast. But, on a podcast. Yeah, not on a podcast, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it's very, very integral to the business in a, in a variety of ways, to your point. Is it the number one revenue driver for us? No. Is it a significant revenue driver? Yes. Uh, is it a huge driver of traffic to our website? Actually, not at all. The way we looked at email when we launched it, and I think this is one of the innovations that has been since copied, is looking at the email product as a distinct product. So if all Quartz were, if all Quartz was, uh, was, an, was a, an email product, what would that be? And so the innovation back then was it, what we wouldn't do is make it a marketing vehicle for quartz headlines and if we had 15 posts in that email you know 14 of them drive you back to a story on quartz we thought that's actually not an email i would find useful rather synopsize the the stories um so that you can just you can learn from the email itself and link out to varieties of sources wherever those are so um so that was the the editorial innovation there what has been what it has done for us is created a sticky daily push product of for quartz that comes into your inbox every morning and a lot of people almost conflate the two i will run into people who say who know us will say oh i love quartz i get it every morning and um, that's their only sort of touch point that's with, their main touch point yeah. with it exactly what's interesting i think as well is like when you think about maybe the push to mobile or um just the growth of that is that if i'm reading an email newsletter focus group of one but if i'm reading an email newsletter on my desktop i'm way more likely to click out and read the stories because it's pretty easy right i'm just like opening new tabs in chrome but if i'm reading a newsletter on the train in the morning well one if i don't have service i can't click out but the other thing is it's just not as easy to navigate different tabs so there is something to be said for just scrolling through scrolling through and reading everything in that um, I, and I think you, you'll see you see that with like Politico and some other 
news organizations that do have really robust email newsletter uh, businesses that have been successful. Precisely. Um, but, so I guess, you know, b- broadly, when, when you think about um, sort of Quartz's positioning in the, in the market, there's like this conventional wisdom right now that you can be really, really big and, and go for scale or be really, really small and, and niche. And Quartz is sort of in the middle. It's a medium-sized publisher. It's trying to reach a business audience that's, you know, not that's not super niche, but it's not mass. Where do you, I mean, do, do you find that um, that space challenging? And, and sort of how do you think about where you guys fit in in the, in the market? Yeah, I think it's a really good question that not enough publishers actually ask themselves, um, particularly in, uh, you know, in a world in which it seems like there's been a lot of pursuit of scale for scale's sake. Um, I would actually classify us as a niche in some ways, a very, very big niche, which was one of the bits of calculus we did when we decided to launch Quartz. So, um, you know, at this point, we reach more than 25 million readers globally across a variety of platforms. Um, if you look at Comscore data, uh, maybe on, uh, in this format, I'm not going to, I won't cite all the people that fall below the line. Suffice mm-hmm. to say, some pretty heady brands um, are, are now smaller than we. We are at the waistline of brands like yours, Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. Um, so I think there's still headroom for us to grow. We don't need to necessarily get to 100, 200 million uniques to be successful. Um, and so I think uh, we are laser focused on trying to serve the global business professional, which is our, our target audience, um, with our journalism, with the experiences that we provide from a, from a UX and product standpoint. And then that is what attracts, I think, very, very successfully a loyal advertising base. They know who the audience is. They know how you speak to them, and they um, they value that. What's interesting, I think, as well, is like you are one of the I don't know, not only but probably few business publications who are you're you're chasing that sort of global business person, that executive that doesn't charge for your content. So the Wall Street Journal does. You know, if you have a certainly a Bloomberg terminal or maybe upstarts like the Information who are targeting sort of the business minded person are saying, you know, we're going to charge a subscription. When you guys are thinking about um, your business model, I mean, is that something that you see down the road, you know, certain premium options? Or do you, do you think that that's not the way to, that you guys want to go? Yeah, no, I think, again, when you get into the niche of, um, uh, you know, of business or global business professionals, you know, one of the other bits of calculus is that's a high value um, audience that also has the wherewithal to pay for things that get maybe get closer to a utility and expensive um, to their employer expense accounts <laughs> and yeah, expensive right all all of that exactly <laughs> so yeah i i think you could see a world some uh, a a place somewhere down the line where quartz you know creates um, products and experiences that the that consumers of our products and experiences might pay for um, uh, it certainly wasn't the you know the the first and foundational piece of our business um, it is an ad supported model currently but yeah that's that's absolutely certainly something we talk about a lot so you mentioned um, sort of publishing across different platforms. A lot of the um, the guests on, on our podcast are in businesses that are sort of following the distributed model, be that, you know, through Facebook or messaging platforms, Snapchat, et cetera. I feel like I see less of that from Quartz. Again, maybe that's just a focus group of one. But how do you sort of view the platform distribution uh, sort of strategy and, and how that plays into, again, sort of the – the type of revenue approach you have where you're bringing people back to your own, your own site and sponsored content and, and some of that stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, we, I think we're relatively relatively agnostic about platforms, meaning that we don't over-optimize for any one. Uh, certainly, we leverage them. You know, one of the, the early premises of Quartz was that in an ad-supported approach where you don't have a paywall, a reg wall, we'll strip all the 
friction out of being able to discover and share our content um, on social media, which is how you go from an audience of zero to 20 million in a very, very short period of time. So um, absolutely, we, um, we you know, work and, and with and publish and, and promote on Facebook, on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter. Um, we haven't done a ton on Snapchat um, yet, but we're certainly in talks with them. I think the critical thing is just not over-optimizing for anywhere on Instagram. Uh, we have not been on Pinterest, uh, for example. I think it's just not over-optimizing so that you have all of your eggs in one basket, and when the game changes, you're, you know, you're left without a chair. There's also like a certain, uh, you know, probably struggle with you only have so many resources. You're, you know, uh, to to really focus on, you know, there are these new platforms and new things every day. Like you have to. You know, have your yo strategy or your elo strategy, and then here we are, like a year and a half later, and I don't think anyone yeah, listening remembers what those are. So, yeah, yeah, right, I, st- I still get email. Do, do I still get emails from Elo? <laughs> Probably. I do. I to refresh I, yeah, your password, maybe. Thank you. Okay. Yes, uh, I, I do. Well, so yeah, so I guess that's that's a I, challenge. I would say, as well. you know, I, I would give me and my leadership team um, highest marks for that over the first four and a half years is deciding what not to do because there are thousands of ideas that start coming your way. There are a lot of things that sound great, um, uh, you know, when you put them on a whiteboard in a conference room. But staying focused, and back to your point, you know, I want just to rewind for one moment. The difference I think between us and some of these mid-level players that you're talking about is, I would not want to be mid-size and be in the general interest space. I think you can be mid-size if you classify 25 million as mid-size, which I think is probably right, and be focused on a specific audience and serving a specific audience and being laser focused, as we're talking about, and, and you can be just fine. But if you're general interest and you're that game's over, yes, it's a tough place to be. All right, we're going to have more with Jay. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break right after this. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back with Jay Loft from Quartz. Uh, we're just sort of talking about Quartz's strategy when it comes to, to platforms and, and how you think about it. Obviously, want to talk about um, perhaps the most important platform in the media business these days, Facebook. We talk about it a lot on the show. Um, I'm curious how you think we, we just sort of reported earlier this week that Facebook is ex- finally, uh, some publishers would say, um, unveiling what, what seems to be their uh, plan for monetizing video, the sort of mid-roll advertising. Um, they're, they're not fans of pre-roll. Um, I'm curious how, what your video efforts have been like, because some publishers have sort of gone all in. I think you guys are a little bit more focused on more traditional, maybe text-based journalism and charts and things like that. But what's your impression of um, Facebook's video efforts you know, in the past few months? Uh, in terms of Facebook's video efforts, I, I think, as you say, that's an, it's an encouraging sign that they're finally going to give publishers a mechanism to, you know, potentially uh, uh, reap rewards for for publishing video. There, that's been our primary 
primary platform for publishing video. We do publish it on our own site. We publish on YouTube, but we're approaching a billion views of our videos on uh, on Facebook, and obviously not been able to monetize them. Um, our approach has been. Uh, that it's really easy to do video poorly and to spend a lot of money doing it poorly. And then there has obviously not been a very readily available monetization mechanism. Almost every site, I would I would bet, including your own, can't generate enough vi- video views on their own and operate it for it to really be meaningful. Um, and so these platforms uh, provide a, a distribution mechanism that I think is really interesting. Um, I'll say long before Mark Zuckerberg said it, when we first launched, we said we'll never do pre-roll on courts. I've said it publicly to kind of keep myself honest. So we share that ethos of not uh, abusing um – Abusing users, so I, I, what do you and, and what's the the rationale for? That? I mean, do you just because it's super annoying and super interruptive, and you know? Yeah, yeah, I think there's off. a lot of lip service in this industry given to user experience, so it's become an overused thing. But we are, you know, if we're zealous about anything, it's that inside our building. I'd say all 200 people distributed around the world that work for Quartz would would say that user experience is the first thing that we think of. And so, when you think about the experience of uh, of pre-roll, it's just a lousy user user experience. Um, and so we just won't do it. We've said publicly, to, maybe to keep ourselves honest, um, there are moments where I'm biting my knuckle over <laughs> it, but uh, that that we won't do it, and 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 we haven't. So, but uh, to be clear, you do have some video ads sort of in in text or in feed, right? It's it's not that you don't do sort of video advertising. No, exactly. We have video advertising. We've created our own player, so that creates a different um, user experience in video that has um, either user-initiated video at any point in the in the editorial video or post-roll. Um, any of the video that you see running on our site, as you say, that's video advertising, is all user-initiated. Um, it is basically our display used as a video you know, platform. And what what you find is that in the data is that the completion rates on those, um, the interaction rates on those videos is, you know, much, much higher than you ever get from, uh, you know, from a, a pre-roll or post-roll situation. So my, you know, I, I think it's that. It's a, it's a laser focus on, on the user. And my belief is that if you do that, the advertising works better. And at the end of the day, it's better for the advertiser um, as, as it is for the for the user. We were talking about this earlier today, just me and Jack. It's Facebook has their video efforts been going on now three years. Zuck has been clear that he's not interested in pre-roll. You mid-roll is sort of diet pre-roll, right? I mean, it's still it's still interrupting something in the middle of an. I mean, it's it's not quite as interruptive as at the beginning. It kind of seems like Facebook maybe spent a few years thinking about how to innovate when it comes to video advertising, and it has arrived at. Television, right? Yeah. You see some content, <laughs> you see an ad, spots, yeah. right? So, I mean, do you, th- I mean, do you think that that Facebook, I mean, they tried sort of suggested videos. That was a uh, you know another program that they had. That ultimately, this is there. There isn't some, I don't know, secret when it comes to video advertising that this is sort of the best you can you can do. Well, I, I think that what they did before turning this 15-second spot on also was allow us to do um, sponsored video content, you know, which I think is a, a, a different that is path. That is different. Yeah, that, that takes you in a different direction than just doing, um, you know, sort of commercial spots. So that was the first thing that they did. Um, they might be limited somewhat in, in, you know, sort of the construct of their platform. I think a, a lot of us in the publishing world are doing really interesting things around um, video for clients. Um, and maybe have a little bit more flexibility to experiment there uh, than they do, which I think is interesting. That the distribution is the is the issue, obviously. 
So talk a bit more about advertising on your site because we, we've kind of touched on it already. You, there's sort of a sponsored content element, but even the display advertising as well is what you could describe as non-standard. Correct. Um, so I, mean, I, I don't want to call it native, but um, <laughs> how do you sort of think about that? Um, and also, how do you sell it? Um, obviously, a lot of publishers these days are selling programmatically through sort of automated sales platforms. Right. Are you guys sort of shunning that approach and going more for sort of the old school direct approach or how do you think about it? Yeah, so um, to this day, um, we have not taken a single IAB standard um, ad of any kind. Um, that has basically, you know, cut us off of a programmatic um, solution, which I've been just fine with um, because, uh, and we can actually get into a discussion of the some of the, the, the perils of, of programmatic. Uh, we are working with a, um, we just um, uh, signed on a DMP that's going to allow us to do potentially some private uh, programmatic, which would be building our own custom units. But the the units to quartz are distinct to quartz. Um, one, because they are, you're right, there's no way around this word native um, to the to the experience. Well, I feel like that's a good use of the word. That's, it makes more sense in that context. Than just saying, yeah, native native advertising. So in, in essence, we offer you two simple solutions if you're advertising on QZ.com. One is the content marketing product, which we call Bulletin. And the second is an ad we call Engage, which is that oversized display that you see. And what I the way I used to frame it at the very beginning was, why can't digital advertising be as welcome as advertising is in the September issue of Vogue? And my, the answer I kept coming to was form factor. You know, if you have relevant advertising that actually looks beautiful, might be useful to you, uh, and actually does not intrude on the experience, is, is consumed at your discretion, um, could be better, and, and so far so good. I know uh, the Atlantic uh, sort of sister company in, within Atlantic Media um, has has taken a pretty you know, tough stance against ad blocking. Uh, I'm curious how you all think about it. I mean, it's it's more of a problem for publishers that are dependent on, as you mentioned, the perils of programmatic and, and sort of display advertising. Um, but has that been a challenge for for you, a business challenge? Yeah, that's a really good question. No, not for us. I mean, for for whatever reason, and I think you know, uh, you know, when I looked at it in depth a year and a half ago, there was a lot of uh, in-app browsing that was taking place for courts, and that did not, um, you know, that that blockers were not really impacting that. But we've got a very low percentage of our um, of our page views that have um, suffered from ad blocking. So one, I haven't had to face that. But I, I feel two things. On the one hand, I stand with the Atlantic and other publishers around the approach of ad blockers, which I think has been um, uh, disingenuous at times. They're, you know, the, some of the claims uh, of, of extortion, I think, are, are arguably fair. Having said that, should we really be surprised that there are ad blockers? The ad experiences on most publisher sites for so long have been so horrifically horrible. They interrupt. They slow your, your browser down. They eat up data. The idea that somebody might invent something that prevents advertising, when you look at the enthusiasm that someone um, with which someone discovers that there is an ad blocker, <laughs> uh, shame on us. And so I, I think you, you, I didn't think of it in the context of ad blocking in 2012. It really wasn't as much a thing. But I think the whole premise of Quartz from the beginning and the way we built advertising was to avoid the need for ad blockers. I mean, you know, one way I look at it is advertising at the very worst that you are happy to tolerate and at best might engage you. Uh, I think, you know, most publishers that I've seen in digital up until very, very recently, um, you know, tolerate was the the high end of that threshold. So what about um, sort of revenue uh, streams beyond advertising? I, I know you guys have events as well. Um, 
talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Have we reached peak events? <laughs> Have we reached peak events in, in the marketplace yeah. in general? No, I, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of room for uh, for invention and, and, and different kinds of expression of events. Um, you know, Lord knows we were just talking before we all got on air here about, you know, CES. We have yet to see what virtual reality might open up in, in terms of, uh, you know. Yeah, virtual reality events, right? experience of events, yeah, right? The, you know, who knows? But yeah, it's, Never have to go back to Vegas. <laughs> I, I would welcome the idea <laughs> of never going back to, to, to Las Vegas. Um, but... Yeah, I would say any of the additional revenue streams for course have been secondary to the the core uh, approach of advertising. Just saying from the beginning, I mean, we've grown literally tenfold. Actually, we've grown tenfold in about every um, metric uh, that matters from uh, from audience size to revenue to number of clients. Um, actually, more than tenfold number of clients uh, to the size of the staff since we launched in 2012. And that's mainly in the revenue side, been on the back of advertising. So we've been, again, staying focused. We've been really good at executing there. I think over you know the, the coming four to five years from us, you'll begin to see more diverse revenue streams develop. I, I know. I remember because I, I was an avid reader um, of the TV b- business vertical that you guys had called Glass. And I think that you, mm. you, you don't really operate that anymore. But I was curious if you see a lot of publishers now constantly spinning up new properties, whether that's on their own site sure. or like – we were joking about Business Insider launched a Facebook page called Insider Cheese. It's just basically cheese videos. So <laughs> there's very niche uh, uh, ways to, to to use this strategy. Is that niche? Everybody likes cheese. That's true. I guess yeah. yeah that's sort of a mass market play. But I'm curious if you um, if you think about other uh, properties or sort of verticals, um, or whether you think that everything could, should sort of operate under the Quartz brand umbrella on all your various platforms. Yeah, it's a it's a very good and, and sometimes complex question to answer and it's one that we that we wrestle with as well. I think largely we like uh, our product line sitting under the quartz umbrella, but Atlas, um, which you may have heard of, which we launched last year, um, uh, intentionally sits outside of that. So Atlas is a chart building and sharing platform that was developed uh, out of our chart builder um, tool that was built in uh, in our in our newsroom and then open sourced on GitHub. And Atlas is really a separate and distinct um, platform for what I just said, uh, you know, d- uh, building and um, distributing charts. We wanted that. We assumed that one of the use cases for that would be other journalistic institutions. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if you all still do, but uh, WSJ was one of the early adopters of Chart Builder when we first open sourced it on GitHub, as was NPR and some others. So um, Atlas is a tool that we think is can be useful to um, some of our competitors as well. So there's a reason, there was a strategic reason to not tie that closely to the Quartz brand. Because competitors might be more likely to use it if it was named Atlas than after one of the competitors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, but I think it, it's. It, I think yeah. Publishers, uh, I think, do struggle with you know product sprawl, and um, I think it's a question uh, that that perplexes you know a lot of people in our industry. Do you think it's just an audience sort of uh, just thinking out loud here? I mean, you see a lot of these publishers just spinning out you know as many sort of iterations of themselves as possible, and I don't know. Maybe it's just a way to sort of inflate your numbers to an extent? I look at it less cynically, at least for us. I I think you do need to be constantly experimenting. I think one of the advantages for courts, one of the competitive advantages is nimbleness. And so, um, and actually maybe going back and dovetailing off that last question, if you look at our app, which I get you guys have probably um, uh, played with, which is the the mobile app now available on Android, by the way, um, that that text interface um, with the app, there was a lot of discussion about what do we call this? Because it's not full quartz 
content or website. It is self-contained within the app. We decided to call it Quartz, uh, Quartz because we felt like that is what Quartz would be if it was an app. Um, uh, so, but I do think it, I think it's important to be experimenting because the way that users are engaging is changing all the time. It's changing rapidly and drastically, and if you get cla- caught flat-footed, it's very difficult to recover. Um, so I have no problem with lots of experiments being spun up. I think, you know, how you brand them, how you uh, market them, how loud you are about saying that this is the new expression of our brand, you know, definitively is, is what you need to be careful about. All right. Well, uh, I think we'll just have to keep an eye out for quartz cheese. Is that? I don't see quartz cheese on the horizon right. well, necessarily. You know, don't write it off. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening, and, and we'll catch you next time on the WSJ Media Mix Podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.